microphone is, is here at the front, so people on, on uh, Zoom can hopefully hear if you talk loudly. It's a long one, so be prepared for a long reading, guys. But this is God's word for us today. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. But one day, some men from the synagogue of freed slaves, as it was called, started to debate with him. They were Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia, and the province of Asia. None of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. So they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen, saying, We heard about him blaspheming Moses and even God. This roused the people, the elders and the teachers of religious law. So they arrested Stephen and brought him before the high council. The lying witnesses said, This man is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs Moses handed down to us. At this point, everyone in the high council (coughs) stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel's. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these accusations true? This was Stephen's reply. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. Our glorious God appeared to our ancestor Abraham in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran. God told him, Leave your native land and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. So Abraham left the land of the Chaldeans and lived in, the, lived in Haran until his father died. Then God brought him here to the land where you now live. But God gave him no inheritance here, not even one square foot of land. God did promise, however, that eventually the whole land would belong to Abraham and his descendants, even though he had no children yet. God also told him that his descendants would live in a foreign land where they would be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them, God said, and in the end they will come out and worship me here in this place. God also gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision at that time. So when Abraham became the father of Isaac, he circumcised him on the eighth day. And the practice was continued when Isaac became the father of Jacob, and when Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs of the Israelite nation. These patriarchs were jealous of their brother Joseph, and they sold him to be a slave in Egypt. But God was with him, and rescued him from all his troubles. And God gave him favor before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God also gave Joseph unusual wisdom, so that Pharaoh appointed him governor over all of Egypt and put him in charge of the palace. But a famine came upon Egypt and Canaan. There was great misery, and our ancestors ran out of food. Jacob heard that there was still grain in Egypt, and so he sent his sons, our ancestors, to buy some. The second time they went, Joseph revealed his identity to his brothers, and they were introduced to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent sent for his father Jacob, and all his relatives to come to Egypt, seventy-five persons in all. So Jacob went to Egypt. He died there, as did our ancestors. Their bodies were taken to Shechem, 
and buried in the tomb Abraham had bought for a certain price from Hamor's sons in Shechem. As, time, as the time drew near when God would fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. But then a new king came, a new king came to the throne of Egypt, who knew nothing about Joseph. This king exploited our people and oppressed them, forcing parents to abandon their newborn babies so they would die. At that time, Moses was born, a beautiful child in God's eyes. His parents cared for him at home for three months. When they had to abandon him, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and raised him as her own son. Moses was taught all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was powerful in both speech and action. One day, when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his relatives, the people of Israel. He saw an Egyptian mistreating an Israelite. So Moses, became, so Moses came to the man's defense and avenged him, killing the Egyptian. Moses assumed his fellow Israelites would realize that God had sent him to rescue them. But they didn't. The next day he visited them again and saw two men of Israel fighting. He tried to be a peacemaker. Men, he said, you are brothers. Why are you fighting each other? But the man in the wrong pushed Moses aside. Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? He asked, Are you going to kill me as you killed that, that Egyptian yesterday? When Moses, heard, when Moses heard that, he fled the country and lived as a foreigner in the land of Midian. There his two sons were born. Forty years later, in the desert near Mount Sinai, an angel appeared to Moses in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he went to take a closer look, the voice of the Lord called out to him, I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses shook with terror and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groans and have come down to rescue them. Now go, for I am sending you back to Egypt. So God sent the same man his people had previously rejected when they demanded, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Through the angel who appeared to him in the burning bush, God sent Moses to be their ruler and savior. And by means of many wonders and miraculous signs, he led them out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, and through the wilderness for forty years. Moses himself told the people of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. Moses was with our ancestors, the assembly of God's people in the wilderness, when the angel spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And there Moses received life-giving words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to listen to Moses. They rejected him and wanted to return to Egypt. They told Aaron, Make us some gods who can lead us, for we don't know what has become of this Moses who brought us out of Egypt. So they made an idol shaped like a calf, and they sacrificed to it and celebrated over this thing they had made. Then God turned away from them and abandoned them to, the, to serve the stars of heaven as their gods. In the book of the prophets, it is written, 
was it to me you were bringing sacrifices and offerings during these, those 40 years in the wilderness, Israel? No, you carried your pagan gods, the shrine of Molech, the star of your god, Rephan, and the images you made to worship them. So I will send you into exile as far away as Babylon. Our ancestors carried the tabernacle with them through the wilderness. It was constructed according to the plan God had shown to Moses. Years later, when Joshua led our ancestors in a battle against the nations that God drove out of this land, the tabernacle was taken with them into the new territory, and it stayed there until the time of King David. David found favor with God and asked for the privilege of building a permanent temple for the God of Jacob, but it was Solomon who actually built it. However, the Most High doesn't live in temples made by human hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Can you build me a temple as good as that? Asks the Lord. Can you build me such a resting place? Didn't my hands make both heaven and earth? You stubborn people. You are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law even though you received it from the hands of angels. The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation and they shook their fists at him in rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing in the place of honour at God's right hand. And he told them, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honour at God's right hand. Then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting, they rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees, shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers, except the apostles, were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Thank you, guys. I'm sure you got a lot of insights out of it. There are so many... Uh, so many insights to gather from this passage. And I just want to, to perhaps not look at all the detail of it, but try to take um, a key message from it. But first, I want to ask a question. What are the things that you desire most in life? What are your hopes and dreams? Let's share. What are some hopes and dreams you've got? Sasha. To see my kids happy. To see your kids happy is a good one, isn't it? To see all our family come to the Lord. Yeah. Yep. It's a good rose. 
What are some other hopes and dreams? What about some of the younger ones? What are your hopes and dreams, Ellie or Lily? You've got your whole life ahead of you. <laughs> of course, that's what happens. Yeah, that's good. Absolutely. Yep. I would like to be like my great-grandparents with generations of Christians. Mm-hmm. Yep. I'd like both my kids to come back to Christ. Yep. Absolutely. You got any, Tim? Hopes and dreams? Hopes and dreams. Um, hope to be a professional volleyball player, but that's a dream. That's a good one. Um and we've all got dreams and desires, don't we? Some of them usually are good and healthy desires that add to the world. They add to ourselves. Others, when we take a step back, aren't so good and they're actually quite selfish. And we all know that we shouldn't really cultivate those unhealthy types of dreams and desires. We should avoid the ones that bring damage and destruction. Of course, most desires and hopes in our lives actually do have the capacity to become problematic if they're given the wrong emphasis or done at the wrong time in the wrong way. Our desires, sadly, aren't often perfect or right. But God's desires are different than ours. His ways, his desires are always right, always perfect. And so one of the most important characteristics of a Christian is to align our hopes, our desires, with God's hopes and God's desires. The mind of Christ our Saviour should live in us from day to day. So this creates a really important question for all Christians. What does Scripture tell us about God's deepest desires? Who wants to share some thoughts on that? What does the Bible tell us about God's desires? Um, That he wants his children to follow him. He wants his people to follow him, be his children. Yep. Says that he's close to those who have got a contrite and broken heart. Yes, he wants us to be contrite, repentant. To live like Christ. He wants us to aspire to be perfect, as his heavenly Father is perfect, as Jesus is perfect. Above all, he wants us to love each other. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbour. Yep. Knowing the desires of God is a critical part of the Christian life. And the Bible actually gives us profound insights into the heart and the desires of God. God seeks a just society. He hungers and thirsts for righteousness. But mercy is also paramount. Forgiveness is central to God. This is seen, of course, in the cross, the center point of history where mercy and justice meet. God's desire, based in love, are best seen at the coming of his Son, given for us so that we won't perish, so that we'll receive eternal life instead, living in the presence of God as his children for eternity. What a beautiful desire this is from God for us. And the story of the cross, of course, just before Acts, leads into the story of Acts in the Bible. And in Acts, we see the desire of God is to become known, 
not just in that small town that Jesus died in 2,000 years ago, but rather God's desire is actually to be known throughout the entire earth. And that's kind of the message of Acts. Acts 1.8 summarizes this desire of God in his mission statement for the church. Jesus said to his disciples at the, of, at the beginning of Acts, before returning to the Father in heaven, you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's the desire of God. That his name goes out to all the world. And the reason for this, as it says in 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, is that God wants every human to turn from sin, to repent, to come into his presence, to be in an eternal and right relationship with Jesus. And we come into God's presence when we know about Jesus. This is God's desire. This is what it is. That he becomes known throughout the world, throughout his world, to all people, to his people. And that's why he called his disciples to go and to preach and spread the word, to be witnesses of this good news about Jesus. And that's why he calls all of us to that same mission today. Is Acts 1.8 a mission that you think much about? Do you spend time in prayer seeking to align your desires with God's desire for this? Do you ask God for advice, for help on how to partake in this calling? Do you make active decisions each day to take part in this desire of God? And if so, what does Acts 1.8 look like in your life? I'd actually love to hear some of your thoughts. What sort of principles do you think are needed to share the gospel with others? I'm sure we can all learn from each other. So let me open up this question for discussion. What are some important ways and principles for us to take part in God's desire and mission for his name to be known throughout the world? I find it funny. When I don't talk to God about those sort of things, it never usually happens. And then I find the day that I pray, the next day, I'll usually always run into something. And I had a case the other day where I finished work for the day. I finished pretty early. So I decided to drop into my old workplace. I'm like, I'll go there, see how everyone's going. Um, And I was talking to the parents of the kids that I used to teach, because I used to have long chats with them. And I just had about the tradie life and all the other things that were into sports and stuff. And then as I was about to leave, I'm like, all right, it's probably time to go. As I stood up, the guy's like, oh, so what do you think about Jesus? And I'm like, oh, okay, well, I can't leave him down. So I ended up chatting to him for another, like, 20 minutes about, about God. So. What an awesome story. And so I guess um, prayer is really mm-hmm. a really important way for us to take part in God's desire, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And for mission. Yeah. Yep. Um, it's an indirect answer, but try to be patient. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the fruit of the Spirit, for someone to react differently to what the normal status quo is, what the mm. flesh is crying out for, mm. I think it can and does speak volumes. Mm. Yeah, that's very good. Uh, and uh, God is slow to anger, patient, isn't he? Mm. Mm. Yeah. What are other principles important for us to take part in God's desire? for his name to go to all the earth. I think the biggest biggest hurdle to God's <coughs> word being spread in the world is the bigotry of the people. Mm. 
people who call themselves Christian but mm-hmm. are not. Mm-hmm. They are religious but not Christian. Okay. They don't have love in their life, they have judgment. Mm-hmm. And Christ told us, don't judge others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. so we can, we can uh, well, if we aren't listening to God's heart and showing his love, we can certainly mm-hmm. do great damage, can't we? Mm-hmm. And and I think it's not just bigotry, but hypocrisy as well. Yeah. I just read just this morning about um, the arrest of a cardinal in Rome mm-hmm. who had been misusing funds that had been given to the church to serve people throughout the world to buy some luxury mansion in London, and he's been you know, Good. arrested by the Italian police. And it, and that sort of that's devastating to God's name. That greed and selfishness. Uh, so, so we we really need to to allow the Spirit to work in our lives and 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 live like Christ and treat it seriously, not just not just think, oh, we'll be forgiven. We will be forgiven, but not by people. <laughs> God might forgive us, but uh, but it's such a destructive thing to the to God's mission. Mm-hmm. Yep. Sorry, I'm just thinking of a passage um, where you don't put a stumbling block in front of a brother yes. or a sister. Mm-hmm. Yep. Be, be Christ-like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Or something like um, you don't hide your light underneath a bucket or something like that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's good. I guess we have all sorts of ideas about how to spread the name of God and good news of Jesus to our neighbours to our society and beyond, don't we? It's interesting to look how God has approached this mission. God seems to actually have quite a different approach to this mission than what I would naturally choose. If I was to spread his name, and it was totally up to me, I think I'd try to do it in a way that didn't result in violence or persecution. I think I'd try to avoid saying things that make people uncomfortable or angry. I wouldn't want people to get upset or distressed. That's kind of my nature, isn't it, Nicole? (laughs) if what I was doing when spreading the gospel was causing difficulties I'd probably change what I was saying maybe soften the message a little bit Mm -hmm. it's interesting to observe in scripture though that God has worked his mission in a way very different to what I've just described and the story of Stephen shows this very clearly Stephen's life appears to be dedicated to sharing the message of God to those around him And I think Stephen shared this message of Jesus in just the way God wanted him to. Look at Acts 6 verse 8. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. Stephen was full of God's power and grace. Would God have given Stephen power if he wasn't following God's way? Could Stephen be described as full of God's grace if he wasn't emulating God? And then take a look at Acts 6, verse 15. The high council stared at Stephen because his face became bright as an angel's. The biblical word for angel is messenger. Angels are supernatural beings who bring God's messages to people. And Stephen looked like one. He was bringing the message of good news exactly the way God was calling him to. Which is why after he finished speaking, he could look into the sky into heaven, and actually see the glory of God and Jesus at God's right hand. And yet, despite Stephen 
bringing the message of God to people exactly the way God wanted him to. Despite that, it resulted in violence and persecution. That's how the listeners reacted. Isn't it strange? Making God's name known to the world, when it's done the way God wants it to be done, it results in persecution and violence. Violence against the Christian person, not the other way around. Why is it that God would ask his followers to take a message into, into the world and take it in such a way that it causes people to hate them? Strange, isn't it? Yet this is the way God has done it. It's the way of God. Look at how Moses and the prophets in the Old Testament were treated. That was the very point Stephen made as he was being accused of speaking against Moses. Our ancestors refused to listen to Moses. They rejected him. That's what Stephen said as he defended himself. Almost every time a person spoke the truth about God in the Old Testament, people got angry. And when God the Son himself came to earth, he was also rejected. Jesus spoke the truth about God. He gave messages of love, forgiveness, grace, holiness, and life with God. And yet he was hated and persecuted too. It seems that when God brings his message to people, there's going to be a reaction. And I think that this is because God's message is intimately connected with self-reflection and the realisation of our need to return to God, our need to stop looking at false gods, to stop putting our trust in our own strength. And this message, deeply connected with our need to repent and be cleansed and forgiven, is an integral part of God's message and God's name going out to the whole world. And when faced with this message, there are only really two reactions that people can have, or do have. One reaction is to embrace the message, to fall on our knees and to bow before God. The other reaction is to hate the message, either through indifference or through anger. Who here likes um, the smell and taste of coriander? Yep, I, I love it. I, to me, coriander smells fresh, beautiful, pure. It's a lovely smell and taste. Do you know there are actually people that hate coriander? Anyone here not like coriander? It came up recently. What does it taste like to you? I, don't, I, I just don't like it at all. Just don't like it, yep. It's overwhelming. Overwhelming, yep. <laughs> Around 15% of Caucasians have a genetic trait in some genes called OR6A2. I looked that up last night. <laughs> that affect their nerves of smell, which makes coriander smell soapy and pungent and horrible. In fact, I looked up coriander smells in Google last night. You know how when you start typing something to Google, it shows you what other people were typing when they're looking it up? Um, well, this is what came up when I searched for coriander smells. Coriander smells like soap. It smells bad, like stink bugs. So the exact same herb can smell totally different to two separate people. <laughs> One person smells it as fresh and lovely, Rose, and the other, Sasha, smells it as horrible. And put up with one another after all these years. <laughs> That's how it is with the message of Jesus as well. In 2 Corinthians 2.15, uh, 2 Paul wrote these words. 
Our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. But this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. When we live like Jesus, sharing his good news of forgiveness, some will see and hear something beautiful. Others are going to smell something putrid. That's just the reality of it. In the Gospel, John wrote something similar. The light of God shines in the darkness, but the darkness does not comprehend it. And Jesus had something to say about it as well. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate light and refuse to go near it for fear that their sins will be exposed. But those who do what's right come to the light. Look at how Jesus was treated by his neighbours and countrymen. He was understood by some, but misunderstood by many. He shone light, and instead of everyone coming towards that light, many turned away from it, becoming angry and violent. Many people hated Jesus. It seems remarkable, but when God has shared his message, his way, it always causes some anger and division. Hatred magnifies, and people either draw towards God or further away from him. Jesus warned that this would happen to his followers as well. He said, Just as they persecuted the prophets before you, so too will they persecute you. And that's what it was like for Stephen. He stood tall for God, but he was cut down by those who would be God's enemies. God's way to achieve his desire to be known and honoured throughout the world isn't necessarily our way. God hasn't done things in a way that we would expect him to do. His way has actually caused, caused reaction of hatred and violence and persecution. And yet where hate is greatest, where persecution is most intense, incredibly, that is where God's name goes to the world best. That's where his message of forgiveness, mercy, redemption and life actually flourish. In Matthew 28:19, Jesus commanded his disciples, go to all nations, baptizing them in the in, in his name, teaching them everything about God. And then in Acts 1.8, Jesus revealed to his disciples that they would be his witnesses, not just in Jerusalem, but also in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And yet, for the first seven chapters of Acts, the message of Jesus remained essentially in that little tiny red section of Jerusalem. But with the death of Stephen in Acts 7, everything changed. With Stephen's death, the followers of Jesus dispersed. They left Jerusalem. They fled as wave upon wave of violence came upon them. Acts 8.1 tells us, A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers except the apostles were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Here's the amazing truth. With those fleeing Christians, the church grew, because with them went the message of good news of the gospel, overflowing from their hearts. They couldn't keep it in. There's a famous early church saying, the blood of the martyrs was the seeds of the church. Mm-hmm. It was actually violence and persecution that led to God's message spreading. Violence against Christians, hatred of Christians, hatred of that message, that led to the church growing. It's true that the early Christians suffered greatly. <coughs> 
They left homes. They left people they loved to escape this suffering. But as they went, God went with them. And the message of joy and peace that they had received from God, a message of good news that was so hated by the men who killed Stephen, that message was taken with the persecuted Christians wherever they went. And they shared the message with everyone they met. And as these persecuted Christians continued to live lives of love and mercy and forgiveness in their new homes, as they spoke the truth about Jesus, revealing God through the story of his death and resurrection, one or two things happened. People heard the message and saw how beautiful it was, how powerful it was, and they repented. They turned to Jesus and they joined his family. But others hated the message. They either became hard and indifferent to it, or they became angry and violent against those who spoke it. But as the Bible says, light always overcomes darkness. Truth always defeats lies. So this is what the story of Stephen teaches us today. Speak the truth about God. We shouldn't be afraid to share the truth. This truth will inevitably include messages about evil, about sin, about my sinful heart, my evil heart, about your evil and sinful hearts. But that message is crucial for us all to hear. Unless we realise we have a problem, we're not going to turn to Jesus as our solution. It's only through knowledge of sin and separation from God that we can repent and call out for his mercy, a mercy that we all need. But the good news, of course, doesn't end with sin because God wipes away our sin. He rescues us from our helplessness and he makes us his children. But when we speak the truth about God, we should expect a reaction. Some people will turn towards Jesus, taking a step closer to him. Others are going to get angry, perhaps even hate us. That's how they treated those who spoke the message in the past. So why would we expect anything different today? Of course, we shouldn't seek persecution or hatred. I've often actually said to um, ministers I've worked with over the years, if I'm going to be disliked or make someone angry, I want it to be because I spoke the truth about the gospel. There's no value in getting someone angry because I, may, because I ram down a political view in a sermon or complain about something or some superficial thing like musical style or dress code. Being negative about someone else or something else and being disliked for that isn't anything to be proud of. I should only ever feel at peace about being disliked when it happens because I'm speaking a necessary truth in love. Equally important, I should not feel at peace if I'm ashamed of the gospel. I should never be afraid about offending someone with the gospel. All Christians need to be ready to share the gospel regardless of how our neighbour, our listener, our families react. And some will react badly. That's okay. Even if someone hates the message, eventually it's going to bear good fruit. The outcome will be good because some people will see the beauty of the gospel. Mm. And the world will transform for the better. So this is the calling and mission of every Christian. Take the message of Jesus wherever you go. It's a message of truth, repentance, mercy and love. And our task is simple. Don't worry about the outcome. 
Some people are going to respond with anger, with hate. But some will embrace God when they hear the message. God will be honoured because of that. Mm. So take heart, be courageous, always be ready to tell people of the hope and love you have received through Jesus.